0: I love, I love, love data storytelling. It's, it's about from a computer perspective. We can build so many cool dashboards and data visuals, right? You, you can build all of these amazing things. But unless someone can actually consume it and read it and understand what it says and know what the clear action is to take after consuming this information, it's just going to sit on the shelf or it might not get used. I've seen so many people that will just build it and they're like, oh, I'm going to build it and they will automatically come.
1: Hello, I'm Denise Withers, and you're listening to Forward, an interview series where today's leaders reveal how they use stories to make change and shape the future. If you need a new way to move forward towards your goals, then stay tuned because I have just the story for you. Data storytelling is a hot topic these days, as more and more people try to find ways to get others to buy into their big ideas. For many, that means simply wrapping their data in a story about how they got the data or what the data mean. But some leaders have figured out how to go much further to increase both insights and impact by using data to shape the story of the future. And I'm excited to have one of those amazing leaders here with me on the show today, Kimberly Harrington is a data journalist and the creator of Buffalo Business Intelligence, working to move healthcare innovation forward in western New York State. By combining her expertise in health services management with storytelling, she's been able to create meaningful change at both societal and organizational levels. She also works to advance the impact of data and analytics across sectors, and recently won the 2020 Data Advocate of the Year Award. I know she has some great stories to share about how she's leading change, so let's get started. Welcome, Kim.
0: Hi, it's great to be here today. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, I'm really excited for this conversation. You know, when we chatted last week, you told me an amazing story about how a seemingly simple data query triggered a movement that's improving the lives of thousands of people in your home state. So I'd love it if you could share that story here to help listeners really start to understand how data storytelling works
0: happy to. I think that there's not enough people out there that really truly understand that one person can make a difference. I kind of think that we become cynical over time. You know, as kids, we're told you can change the world. And as we get to be adults, we stop thinking that. When I was really young, I was actually told this wonderful story about starfish. (laughs) There's an old man who had a habit of taking early morning walks on the beach. And one day after a storm, he saw a human figure in the distance, like moving, kind of like a dancer. As he came closer, he saw that it was a young woman and she was not dancing, but was reaching down to the sand, picking up a starfish and very gently throwing them into the ocean. Young lady, he asked, why are you throwing starfish into the ocean? The sun is up. The tide is going out, and if I do not throw them in, they'll die, said the young girl. But, young lady, do you not realize that there are miles and miles of beach and starfish all along it? You cannot possibly make a difference. The young woman listened politely, paused, and then bent down, picked up another starfish, and threw it into the sea, past the breaking waves, saying, It made a difference to that one. This is a story that I learned when I was in middle school, and I've carried that philosophy with me throughout the rest of my life.
1: That's a really that's a really lovely story. I,
0: I like sharing it because there are so many people that haven't heard it, and it had such a profound impact on me at a young age that made me to the person that I am today, and this story that I'm about to tell you. At the beginning of the... COVID-19 pandemic, right before we went into lockdown, the last time that I was presenting in front of a group of people, I was presenting a presentation about the social determinants of health. Now, the social determinants of health are those conditions that impact the way that we live, play, work, and age, and they make up things like economic stability, neighborhood and physical environment, education, food, community and social context factors, and like the healthcare system. And the biggest thing about social determinants of health is that there is a 15-year life expectancy difference between the most advantaged and disadvantaged Americans. And when you think about like healthcare as a whole, 20% of health outcomes can be directly attributed to clinical care, and 80% of health and wellness is tied to social and economic factors, physical environment, and health behaviors. So, I'm a visual person as a data journalist, and I like to kind of tell this story. There's no way to really kind of make this story attractive to a large number of people because there's so many different factors. So how do you tell that story? So I had uh, developed a love for geospatial information technology in the summer of 2019. Just thought it was really cool. (laughs) And when I was doing that, I stumbled across a uh, study done by University of North Carolina where they actually visualized the social determinants of health in that area, and they had made this really cool index. So I had just turned to one of my colleagues and said, wow, I wish we could build something like this in Buffalo, but I don't think we'd see something like this built for years. A week later, she emails me and she has this app. (laughs) <laughs> that she <Ooh>. had built, <laughs> she took their study and she was able to look at it from different layers and actually make it happen in Buffalo. And when I was like looking through this stuff, as a person that's in healthcare and technology, I was wondering about how technology plays into this factor. And sure enough, I stumbled across a study by Jane Saunderson Khan from the Health Populi blog talking about broadband access as a social determinant of health. I thought this was really cool. And so I sent this article to Dr. Wendy Mix, who made this uh, social determinants of health map for Buffalo. And I said, do you think we could add this in? And she added this into our presentation. So from that, I realized that 18.6% of Western New Yorkers do not have access to internet. It was incredible to learn that so many people in the area that I live can't simply access Google. And when you think about it, Google is really a doorway to a whole nother universe, right? So fast forward to 10 days later, (laughs) when the pandemic is big front page news, and a lot of our companies in Western New York has suddenly shut down in terms of like sending people home. And I realized that, oh my gosh, 18.6% of the people in my area aren't going to be able to access the internet. And yet everyone has to work from home. You had to use it to buy groceries online. (laughs) You know, there were so many people that were going to be at a disadvantage. So I start thinking of, okay, how can I potentially help? How can I be that girl that's throwing that starfish (laughs) into the ocean? I know I can't feasibly offer internet to all of these people. There's no way that I can do that, right? But I start thinking about other things that I've seen. And I had seen that now with everybody working from home, there is less people going places. So there's less use of public transit and there's less uses of parking lots as people are staying home. And there was a lot of people that needed access to the Internet for work and school. So. I came up with this concept of taking public transit buses (laughs) and using Wi Fi routers on public transit buses that are not in use and putting them in parking lots and offering free Wi Fi access to anyone that needed it. It's a great idea in theory. It just was a matter of getting a hold of a bus company that would allow me to do this. Like I had the data to show that this was going on, but everyone was still in such panic mode that I think it was really difficult for anyone to really hear any kind of discussions about the digital divide that early into the pandemic.
1: Mm -hmm. And this isn't just about working from home. This is also about being able to access the latest information about the pandemic.
0: Exactly. People are not sure, should I be washing my hands? Is it safe to go see my sister or my mother? There was so much fear at that point. And I just was so consumed with the fact that I wanted to help in whatever way that I could. So I thought, okay, well, how could I leverage my network? Because when I reached out to busing companies, they weren't really ready for this. But I reached out to a friend of mine who had access to internet routers. And I said, hey, if I can find us a parking lot, would you give us equipment to be able to offer free Wi-Fi? And they very graciously said yes. So. I was able to find a partner at the Westside Community Services Organization, and they allowed me to come to their parking lot and set up and offer free Wi-Fi access in in their parking lot to people. This was on Saturdays from like 8 to 2 that we were going to have just free Wi-Fi access in downtown Buffalo. Now, nobody came. To our first event, because we were advertising for free internet services via the internet. (laughs) Mm, Right. But something really magical happened. Just the fact of me setting up and saying, I'm here to give what I can on that first Saturday, inspired someone else to say, oh, we have art packets that we can distribute to kids on those days. So then we started working together to let people know there's going to be art packets that kids can come pick up. And so we had a couple people come pick up art packets the the next weekend. The following weekend, we had somebody say, oh, you know, you've got art packets and Internet. That's not what people need. People need masks. And this is when they were extremely difficult to get a hold of. And we're like, yes, people do need masks. They're like, I have masks. So we distributed masks and art supplies and Wi-Fi the next weekend. And then it continued to grow. More and more people started saying, oh, hey, I could bring this. So by the end of summer 2020, they we had hosted seven weekend events with free Wi-Fi for anyone. And we distributed hundreds of face masks, over 250 bags of art supplies, 150 bags of school supplies, uh, 440 personal wellness bags, hundreds of flowers for Mother's Day, and 720 bags of groceries.
1: Uh, that's amazing.
0: It was a really wonderful experience in that during that entire time, did people come necessarily for Wi-Fi? No, (laughs) it was a failure, right? But when I set up Wi-Fi Warriors, I really had two main goals. My first goal was to raise awareness about the digital divide and to let people know what was happening. And then my second goal was to get internet to a parking lot (laughs) to allow people to use it for free while keeping it socially distanced. The thing that really happened, though, is that while all of this was happening, a local news reporter had found that layer of maps for the internet access that was on our app, and he had found it very interesting. So he worked with Dr. Mix, and they built another dashboard to show wireless and broadband access in Western New York and like f- dig more deeper into the numbers. And using that information, this news reporter was then able to find out that in the southern tier of western New York, there was actually over 100 miles of dark fiber that was laid back in 2009 that just hadn't been hooked up to homes because it it was a part of Obama-level road infrastructure projects, but they just got shifted around and people kind of forgot about it. So that meant thousands and thousands of people actually could access internet. They just needed somebody to hook it up for that last mile. And it wasn't until... Going back to 2019 when I was working with Dr. Mix and just saying, hey, I found this from someone else about social determinants of health and this from Wi-Fi and then adding it there to make the knowledge available that then enlightened more people. So that was a major news announcement that came out in December of last year. And now we have a bunch of different coalitions all across Western New York. And I now sit on these committees to kind of help people think of plans to help expand broadband access across Western New York.
1: That's an incredible story of how one little simple action can snowball and create this much bigger lasting impact. And the thing that stands out for me in that is that when a lot of people think about data storytelling people think of it in terms of making their data pretty e- easier to consume and for me and i think for you it goes much beyond that and you just referenced it there this idea of not only did you make it available you actually made it compelling and so can you tell me a little bit more about what data storytelling means to you
0: sure i love i <laughs> love love data storytelling it's it's about from a computer perspective We can build so many cool dashboards and data visuals, right? You you can build all of these amazing things, but unless someone can actually consume it and read it and understand what it says and know what the clear action is to take after consuming this information, it's just going to sit on the shelf or it might not get used. I've seen so many people that will just build it and they're like, oh, I'm going to build it and they will automatically come. Right. Right.
1: And what we've learned about decision making is that despite the fact that we like to think of ourselves as rational people, and every decision we make is all based on data and logic. In in fact, the research shows that that's not the case. Most of our decisions are actually driven by emotion. And so what are the elements of story that you think are important to bring into that kind of communications work?
0: Well, you definitely have to have a clear characters, just like in a regular story, you have to understand who are the players that are a part of this that you want to, to move. And when you're thinking about characters, if you are a report builder, usually you're building it for the character, which is an executive. And this executive, you need to think about them and their day and the way that they're interacting with information. This executive has probably gone to meeting after meeting after meeting all day. (laughs) And then they are opening up the reports at the end of the day to look to see what they need to do to move on, to keep going, and uh, keep their businesses thriving. So I want you to think of people consuming information the same way that they would consume food, like in a buffet. (laughs) So that executive has been in a buffet all day long. (laughs) And then at the end of the buffet, they are ready for dessert. Now this analyst has built them a seven layer double fudge chocolate cake that is so rich with data and information. It's got so much stuff for you to consume. But that executive only has an appetite for a single vanilla crepe with a raspberry on top. Right.
1: So We have to be really intentional about how we design the stories that we want to share. So the story structure that I work with at a really simple level is a problem and a quest and a solution. Mm -hmm. Because we're always using stories to help us make sense of what's going on in the world. so we're constantly wondering why something is happening. We're constantly problem solving. So if I'm sitting here at my desk right now and I see a dinosaur walk by my window that's going to catch my attention and, and it's going to trigger a cognitive problem for me because I need to figure out why the heck is a dinosaur walking by my window. And so okay. it's going to trigger this thing that was called epistemic curiosity. And then I'm going to go off on and find a quest for information or knowledge to help me solve that problem. And then somewhere along that quest, I'm going to get the data or the information that helps me make sense of, oh, you know, that dinosaur just escaped from the dinosaur exhibit next door, or it's a friend of mine in a costume trying a new look for Halloween. And then at the end of that, I will have some kind of a resolution to my story. I might go out and I might say, hey, that's a great costume or hey, get out of my yard.
0: That resonates. That's pretty cool. I I would say when you were talking about the quest and the solution, I would say for a lot of the data visuals that I see in my field, close to 90% of the visuals that I see are all quest and solution, but not problem.
1: Well, and that's a really critical thing, because if you don't introduce a problem, then you're not going to be able to catch somebody's attention. That really is where the hook comes in. If your data isn't introducing some way to solve a problem that's meaningful to the reader. Why would the reader read it in the first place? And I think this is one of the bigger problems that we see in storytelling in general, especially organizational storytelling, which is we don't want to talk about problems and we don't like to talk about obstacles and we don't want to talk about things that went wrong or or challenges that we've had to overcome because historically the culture is that that makes us look weak or it makes us look like we're bad at our jobs. When in fact, it's the opposite. If you don't have a problem to overcome, you don't really have a job to do. And if you can't tell me about how great you are at overcoming problems and and solving challenges then I'm not going to be impressed by you. (laughs) So when you come to tell me the story of the data, if you come to say that, you know, the story that you use, the example that you used about the fact that the the Western New York, a large percentage of the population doesn't have access to high speed Internet. If that's the title of the data set that you're going to present to me, you know, Western New York suffers because of no high speed Internet or whatever that headline is. Mm -hmm. And I'm a politician now you're going to get my attention. I'm going to look at that data set because I'm going to go, crap, those are my constituents. That's something that is going to come up and bite me in the butt. And so I need to know what's going on. I need to know what those data are going to tell me so that I can then take that and act on that.
0: That's why on our social determinants of health map, I had a now what section that we had written on there. And I had things out there for many different persona types. So I had for politicians, I'm trying to get to them to push the importance of capturing these things called ICD-10 codes. These are billing codes that are used to tell more of the story of why someone was injured or why they are sick and we have different codes that can tell more about their social situations. There are some like that for homelessness, et cetera. And those codes, we need more of those so we can devote more healthcare dollars to addressing those codes. Because again, if you don't have the data, you're not going to get the funding (laughs) to to deal with these things. But right now, I don't believe there is an ICD-10 code that says lack of broadband access for that. But that could be one of those conditions that could lead to someone getting COVID 19 right now, right? So, if the person didn't have a wireless internet or didn't have broadband access at all, they would have to physically go to some place that would have broadband. And by doing that, they might contract COVID 19 in that location. And that's how they got it.
1: And I think the challenge for me, if I was the consumer of that, so if I was the politician looking at that, I might not have ever got to that final so what section if you didn't hook me in the first place. Mm
0: hmm. That is why it is probably my biggest struggle right now is, again, how do you make social determinants of health attractive for it? Right now, I have seen more articles and I'm working on one right now that has COVID-19 and social determinants of health linked to kind of show if there's relationships between people in a specific area and how many COVID-19 cases there are, depending upon how poor their social determinants of health are in that area. And so far, the research that we're coming back is showing there does appear to be a a large relationship. And
1: so it feels to me like the data storytelling piece is, it's very much like a, a marketing piece, this very same problem, figuring out who your target audience is and what problem you can solve for that person. And you alluded to this earlier, there's a difference between the person who simply loves data, loves working with data, and it's like an artist. It's somebody who wants to make a painting or make a sculpture simply because They're very passionate about it and they love doing it. So there's that piece. And then there's the applied arts where you're a graphic designer and you get hired to do a job to solve a problem for a client. That feels like the two scenarios to me. And so it feels like a balance for data journalists and data storytellers to recognize that they're not sharing data just for the sake of sharing data. They're sharing data as part of a bigger activity to solve a problem.
0: Yes, I would agree with that.
1: So, tell me a bit more about what else you're doing with data storytelling and how that's finding its way into your work.
0: Sure. So, the work that I do in my community through Buffalo Business Intelligence really is just connecting all of the people across Western New York that are analysts that want to work in a similar place in terms of working with data and analytics. The thing is, all of them may not have the ability to say what is impeding them or what challenges they might be having. So, by bringing them together, These individuals can work and discuss what kind of challenges that they came up with and other people can help them. Yeah.
1: So is it peer-to-peer learning or are there multiple levels going on?
0: It's mostly peer-to-peer for this. I'm, I'm working on a second phase where it's bringing in more uh, data literacy trainers, doing train the trainer kind of things where people then become data literacy champions and then spread it amongst their own particular areas.
1: And so what's the biggest challenge that you're seeing in terms of getting more people to try and do data storytelling?
0: Um, Actually, I would say finding room for it within your organization. Data journalism itself within companies is still a fairly new concept. I am the first data journalist in... Western New York to my knowledge. When I was able to get this opportunity, I actually didn't think that Western New York was ready for a uh, data storyteller type person. Because in order to be a data storyteller, you need to have enough people that have already learned how to use things like Tableau or Power BI to understand the business value of needing someone to help communicate the findings in the data. Because Just getting to the point that you can get data on a screen for Tableau and Power BI, it it isn't as simple as you would think (laughs) for for some people. And so the people that have the skills that pick those up really quickly may not also have excellent communication skills with the public. They're much more comfortable talking with computers than they are talking with a person sometimes.
1: Yeah. And that's the expert syndrome that, that we see a lot of. So for organizations who are curious about data storytelling but don't really know how to start, what would be uh, what would be a good first step for them?
0: Honestly, if there's a company that is looking to build data storytellers within their own organization, I would send them to bibrains.com with Miko Yuck. She is the person that helped me discover data storytelling. That company is the company that has helped to really kind of build me up to where I am. I was that business analyst that was thinking, I'm not a mind reader. How do I help my users? <laughs> you know, How do I get out of them what they want to see on a screen? How do I pull that story out? And then how do I write the data down to have other developers work together to create that final vision? And their BI data storytelling courses really are absolutely amazing.
1: Okay, that's excellent advice. Thank you so much, Kim. There's some really great stories in there. And there's some really great tips. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share your insights and your expertise with us.
0: Not a problem at all. I just hope that your your listeners really kind of start to think about how they look at this, how they seek out information, how they ask for more information and how they communicate information with others.
1: I'm sure that they will. Thanks again and take care. You've been listening to Forward, a podcast about how leaders use stories to shape the future. If you'd like to know more about how story design can help you develop and sell your big idea, get in touch at denisewithers.com.